and punching 50, 50 feet into the wind is not nothing. It's, it's tough. And yeah. to get the flag to roll out there. And, and the, the, I think where, where uh, the, the trout guys, and I'm not talk, talking about the, the bobber clan, I'm talking about the dry fly purists that go to heaven. They know how to present the fly delicately. Right? You're saying I'm not going to heaven, Kristen? You're not going to go to heaven if you're using a bobber. Isaac Walton said that in his book. So. Man, I am team split shot and bobber. Oh, You're out, man. You're out. Well, I'll be in good company. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. So what's going on in your world? Not much, man. Just cranking, working. Another day here in Florida, man. We're supposed to get a cold front in, so tomorrow I'm probably going to go do some shooting at the range. Waste a bunch of ammo I don't want to waste, but I want to shoot. So It's not a waste to shoot it, I don't think. I mean... No. No, and it's rifled, too, so I'm not going to be going down there to dump a bunch of loads. It's just do a little testing on my reloading. So what's new with Nautilus? Um, What is Nautilus? For for those listeners out there that that don't know we make fly fishing reels uh i think uh you know we came into this in 2003 and looked at what was out there for big game fly fishing and the 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 ultimate thing was was the cork drag however inefficient it was it was still if you were a serious big game fly fisherman you have to have a cork drag so it was the world of uh, you know ables and t-bores out there that came off of the Seamasters. And, and the whole reason they used cork drags was because that's how clutches and cars were made. But that stopped in the late 50s. Yeah. And, and, and now all those are used, you know, they use carbon fiber and that. Uh, but we did think, we were like, man, let's just use carbon fiber as a braking surface. It's far superior. Uh, the downside of carbon fiber is it warms up a... Uh, it will heat up the components. And if you've got a stacked design, like most drags are stacked these days, uh, the metals will expand, which increases the pressure more, which gives you more friction, which gives you more heat and it expands even more. And you can end up in a situation where you, uh, you know, you're, you're going up, you know, 30 to 50% in pressure on your drag, depending on where it's set. And you can, whatever, break a fish off if you're fishing, you know, very light class tippets. Right. But, the reality is, you know, in a practical world, it has no effect. But we figured out how to dissipate heat from the entire drag system and uh, kept cork in there. And uh, the main reason for having the cork in there uh, was marketing. Yeah, in our pitch, we say that it's, uh, we give them all the advantages of cork that, uh, that, that, that are typically found in reels and what they were pitching. Okay. And, if you look at the way, you know, cork is forgiving, uh, it has memory, it comes back, and all that is relatively true. Uh, but ultimately for us, it was an insulating plate, even though the glue we used to bake the carbon fiber onto the plates with 
is also an insulator. But we figured that everybody that's a serious big game fisherman uses cork. So we had to include cork in the reel, even though it didn't actively uh, perform a breaking, uh, the, the, the job of breaking. And it worked for us. And I think now there's more and more carbon fiber out there. You know, some of the top brands still don't use carbon fiber because it's expensive. They'll have like carbon, carbon infused to this and that. But the carbon fiber discs are, are, are used by most uh, uh, or by many high-end uh, reel manufacturers. I mean, it's all they use in spinning reels, right? Or, or, or in bait casters. Right. Uh, so it, it is a superior uh, drag material. But, uh, you know, so right out of the gate, I think it was a year after launching our CCF, which is the carbon fiber drag system that we have, uh, we painted the back of the drag cover that we had sealed. So we were the first ones to do a, a truly sealed big game reel and one that had pop-off spools. That didn't exist in the saltwater world. I don't know if you remember or if you ever did take apart an old able or t-bore you know the draw bars would fall out and you could lose parts switching the spool oh yeah (laughs) on your trout reel you just flick the lever right and so we figured out how to make a draw bar reel with a pop-off spool um everybody else followed on that one but uh the red drag was was you know my my idea of of the brembo breaks of the fly fishing industry right i wanted to have a red drag visible from the back of the reel and uh Nowadays, you're hard pressed not to find a reel that's that's got a red drag cover, or yeah, you know they they all have it. So I think we've, uh, you know, the early days we operated under the radar; they weren't taken as seriously, and I think that's how we managed to get uh, as far as we got. Uh, you know, the the big guys didn't really pay much attention to us, and. Uh, didn't believe in a lot of the concepts that we had, but now, I mean, you go around there and look, every reel has a claim that it's a sealed system. Right. And uh, some are sealed and some are not. And it's the, it's the first thing that a lot of anglers consider when they're going to a saltwater reel is like, is it sealed or not? That's right. And, and, and we were the first ones to seal the reels. And, and I know some of the major names out there, one of the guys old timer in the industry, he said, there's no such thing as a sealed reel. And, you know, I partially agree with him because if you, if the seal is ruptured somehow, or if it, or if, you know, it could rupture during assembly and we test them, but uh, like when they switch a break or somebody services the reel at house, they could do something uh, to to compromise the integrity of the seal. Uh, If that happens, then it's a really sealed reel because the water that got in will never, ever get out. <laughs> is your manufacturing in America? It's all here in Miami. We outsource some parts. Uh, Missouri, uh, Massachusetts manufacture some parts for us. Uh, the screws, I don't know the origin. I can't imagine they're made here, even though there's many screw manufacturers here. So, you know, I'd say it's safe to say that, you know, about half the screws would be made in the U.S. that we use. Our bearings are U.S. made. And uh, the one-way clutch uh, that engages the drag is the one thing that's imported. It comes from Japan. And that is because no one's been able to make one that's as good as the one we use. Ours is actually a testament to how sealed our reels are. We use the same one-way clutch in our GTX that exerts 30-some pounds of pressure all the way down to our X series reels. We use the same one way clutch and it's not stainless. It's not stainless because stainless steel is softer. So you can't really exert that much pressure. You're going to run into trouble. But the fact that it's not stainless also tells you, man, if we get water in there, it's going to rust out. Sure. Okay. So what, what is your role with Nautilus? Uh, man, um, delivery boy, real designer, <laughs> tech signer, uh, Model. Uh, yeah, not really, but almost. Um, <laughs> I do it all. You know, I run the shop, but uh, I mean, everybody here does everything. The other day I went out there and polished a few reels because I wanted to see a finish on this machining we're doing on a new reel. And, and I set up the polisher. And, uh, one of the assembly girls came out and she goes, are you polishing? 
I was like, yeah, it's been a while, hasn't she? She goes, man, it must be like 14 years. <laughs> yeah, I look, I look back at it, and 14 years ago, you know, when everybody left work, I'd go and polish today's production. So wow. I've done it all, and I'm still doing a lot of it. So, What is the importance to a drag in a reel? Like, it, it, it may seem obvious, like the drag is what applies pressure to a, to, to a fish to try and slow them down and create more resistance, but there's more to it than that. Yeah. So I think, I mean, honestly speaking, 90% of your fly fishing, you don't really need a drag. And, and like, I've got some guys asking me to make eight weight click Paul reel to go bone fishing with I'm like, man, that's gotta be a small market. Everybody, even the trout guy nowadays wants a big drag. I think if you don't have a drag, you've got a, a hard to sell reel yeah. and not the case if it's specifically built to be a click pole. I know that the Ross guys have had a great success with the Colorado. It's my favorite little click pole out there. Uh, but when a guy walks in a store and picks up a trout reel, uh, if that trout reel doesn't really lock down, they'll put it right down and pick another one, pick it up and try to wrench the spool and go, Oh man, this thing, this thing's got a lot of drag. Awesome. You can stop a truck and- with it. Yeah, and, but they'll never use it, but that's okay. But yeah. it's, it's become part of the sales pitch. It's like, if you don't have that drag, you know, you're, you're, you've just cut your shot at selling a real 50%, which is ironic. But I think that the, the real purpose of a drag on anything up to uh, a seven weight really is uh, to stop the line from birds nesting on you. Yeah. Uh, and you could do that with a click pole. I mean, even for, you know, the, the smaller bone fish and even bigger bone fish, you can have a good time. I mean, who doesn't palm their reel when they're trout fishing? But again, I also see the advantage in a, in a great drag uh, when you're catching, you know, bigger trout. So you could have a five weight and you're fishing, uh, I don't know, five X tippet and you get a, you know, a big trout that starts to pull you out into a deeper pool. It's nice to have a drag, but it's even nicer if that drag is smooth and consistent. And uh, does it help? Yeah. I mean, I was up in Iceland and fishing tiny nymphs on these lake run browns, and you're hooking them. And whenever you have a big one, they decide that uh, they want to go to the other side of this mile long lake. And they start swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming and swimming. And you're like, man, what can I do? You know, I'm fishing 4X maybe and start to tighten down on the drag on a size 12 little nymph and you're like okay i gotta i now i just have to tighten it because i'm gonna run out of backing and you tighten it and the hook pulls and that's the end of the story yeah but uh yeah there's there are places in 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 the trout world where drag uh is a big advantage but for most of your trout fishing you don't really need it and that that smoothness really helps because a lot of drags will have a tight spot and it will lurch every time that reel comes around and as it heats up and stuff like that. And that can create that one portion of tension that causes the breakage, right? Yes. So the first reel we designed was just a cork uh, drag before we put the carbon fiber in. And what we had was as you back the drag off, the problem with cork is you have to maintain it. You have to keep lubricating it. And so what we had, we designed uh, it was the same hub, but we had a, a free-floating carbon fiber or cork disc in there. As you tighten the drag, the oil or the lubricant will come off the cork and, and, and let the cork apply friction. But as you backed off the drag, it would suck the lubricant back in on top of the cork. So it was just lubricating itself the whole time. And it worked well, but yeah, it was skipping. You know, startup inertia on a cork drag wheel when it's freshly lubed is around 8%. Uh, so it, it's, and, and I'm going to make a correction here. Everybody calls it startup inertia. It's actually called breakaway friction. And breakaway friction is you pushing your car because uh, you ran out of gas and you start and you got to push it like a mule and suddenly it starts to roll. And then you can just pretty much stand straight up and keep pushing the car. So that's your breakaway friction. How much to get it going to break away from whatever it's stuck to. Right. And uh, with cork, that starts at eight percent, and every time you strip line off, it it goes up. So you could have, if you are fishing, you know, uh, eight pound test, 
and you decide that you want to have four pounds of drag, which is a lot. It's, you know, 50% of your tip of strength. That's a, a tough one. But if you, you know, start at 10%, that's breaking it. That's going at five and a half uh, or, or at, um, at uh, what, 4.4 pounds now, right? And as you fish along the day, that could creep up to 15 and 20%. And now you've got five pounds of drag on this eight pound tippet. And that's, that can be critical. With, with carbon fiber, it's extremely smooth. It's under, uh, under 1%. I think we say 1% on, on, on some of the materials, if we even say it anymore. But we actually have to take the clickers. They're just little feather spring mounted uh, uh, Delrin little pins that go up and down this little rounded click track uh, noisemakers. We have to take those off to be able to measure the startup inertia because they interfere with that. That's how light it is. Interesting. That's amazing. That's really amazing. I, I appreciate a good drag. I, I absolutely do. And to be completely honest, just like you said, 99% of the time I do not need it on a trout, but there is one very memorable fish to me. And that was a, a dolly that I caught up on the Kenai peninsula and it was a 29 and a half inch fish on a nine foot, nine inch five weight, big fish, big, big fish, big water. Um, I saw, you know, parts of my backing that a trout had never seen shown me before. And it was a lot of runs, you know, that fish had come in and then it would completely leave again. And I'd lose another two or 300 yards of backing when he did it. Yeah. So, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing about the whole startup thing. You mentioned bouncing. Yeah. When we first went to carbon fiber, we sent it out to the guides and the instant feedback was, yeah, it's fine. And we were like, what do you mean? Fine. (laughs) You know, they said, well, the only difference I had is if the tarpon was just like on a slow swim uh, and then he sort of stalls and just hangs there and then takes off again. With the cork track, the rod tip would bounce up and down a little until it stabilized. And with the carbon fiber, the rod tip just went down and stayed exactly in the same position. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. your bouncing, right? Yep. And, and that's your startup inertia. And in the case of your dolly, I'm sure you're fishing big flies, but like in Iceland, when you've got a tiny hook, if that fish surges and you've got a bouncing rod tip, that little hook could be caught around the corner of a tooth or something, and it's going to pop it off. Yep. Yeah. So it's not just tippet, right? Yeah. Well, Nautilus is not the first fishing venture that the Mustad family has taken part in, is it? No. So I'm, uh, I always say I'm related, but not affiliated, which means, <laughs> which means I don't get a check. But so <laughs> it, my cousin Hans sold uh, the business, uh, sold the, uh, consumer side of the fishhook business uh, to a venture capital firm four or five years ago, no, probably more, eight years ago. Uh, so it's not in the family anymore. Uh, but it was, it's all, I think it's, it was founded in 1830 something. Wow. So it's old. And did they start with hooks? Started with fasteners. So nails, uh, then they did some zippers, tacks, like thumbtacks type deals. Uh, then horseshoe nails. Uh, and then when my grandfather passed away in 73, the whole, all the holdings were split up there, the food business and, and some real estate business and all that got split up among family members and certain members were bought out, others bought in. Uh, but the, the, the entire thing up until near, you know, mid 2000s, around 2005 was still held by family, That's which cool. is pretty cool. That's a lot of generations. I think it's like nine generations. Yeah. The the ranch that I live on here, I'm the fifth generation on, and my little sister has has boys now, so they're the sixth generation. Cool. And it is extremely difficult to move a business from one generation to the next. It's crazy. But you know, but but you know what? I had a client once, uh, and I should call him. I haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, Canadian guy, he told me there comes a point in your life and he just handed his business over to his sons. He said, there comes a point where you have to, 
that you have to prepare for. He goes, I struggled when my dad gave me the business uh, because my dad didn't want to let go. And he goes, so I recognized when my kids said, hey, dad, we want to take over. I realized that they were prepared for it. And I was not prepared to keep it running because times have changed. The mind isn't as sharp as it was. This guy was in his mid-60s, maybe. So it's not like he was old, old. But he already realized that his mind wasn't as sharp and not as savvy in today's business environment. See, my dad still believes in a handshake deal. And that can cost him a lot. Yeah, because nowadays, you know, you, you know, you, the only handshake deal that you would do is one that could cost you maybe a friendship or less, but not a lot of money. And so that's how it evolves. So I can I can see that uh, on a especially on a farm uh, where, you know, the prior generations used to do in something one way and then you come in and change it all up. Yeah. You know, I live in a, a very rural area. And the handshake means a lot more than the contract here. Yeah. But in a lot of places, it certainly does not. And there's still that vulnerability because there's people that move here that that are not from here, and they'll they'll absolutely exploit that and take advantage of it. And exactly. You know, then uh, they go for a hike, and, and nobody ever sees them again. I guess or you know what whatever happens to those people. Yeah. And so what 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 have you seen transition uh, or change in the ranching industry? Um, is cattle is cattle still big? Cattle is still huge, and and that's okay. that's the bulk of what we do. One of the big differences is that the the packing plants have consolidated down to two or three major businesses. Um, so you have you know thousands and thousands of beef producers, and then all of their beef has to go through, you know Tyson, for the most part. So the price of beef in the store is extremely high, but the price of beef when you're yeah. selling cattle is pretty low. Uh, yeah, because you have two because you have two guys that dictate the price. Exactly. So it it's it's definitely flirting with a monopoly right now, and that's that's a change within the cattle industry. But in a lot of ways, it it's relatively the same. There's new challenges popping up all the time. You know, we've got wolves that are eating our cattle now. We haven't had to deal with that for a hundred years. the The climate is different. We've got new invasive species. So, so if you look at at uh, if you go back in time, it's your dad or your uncles when they were running it, let's say 90% of revenue was from cattle. Is it still that way today? Or are you guys doing, uh, uh, you know, tourist things, uh, you know, trips, hunting? I don't know. Yeah. I added fly fishing to the ranch. Um, when I got out of the cool. Marine Corps, that was, that was my first move. When I got back, I was hurt. wasn't able to do the heavy lifting on the ranch. So, um, we've got a terrific trout stream here. I was like, well, you know, I've guided since I was a little kid. I'll just start an outfitting business and, and guide fly fishermen. Um, Very cool. And then that that grew into a, a much larger business um, encompassing all, all kinds of things within Six Ranch Outfitters. But no, fly fishing was a great way for me to to kind of get healthy as I came back from all of that stuff. And now it's a it's a fantastic standalone business that adds value to the ranch without taking anything away from it. And we worked with... Uh a group called discover courage. Have you heard of them? No, sir. So they uh, just like project healing waters where a lot okay. of, you know, veterans go in and they heal through that or they find a new passion. Uh, they take, uh, so discover courage focuses on uh, classified uh, guys. So oh, nice. you'd have, you know, the SEAL teams and all those guys, they can't talk about any of their experience, not into their shrink, but that's changed now, I believe. But they can't talk about any of it. They can't disclose it. So when they come home, it's all locked up. They can't let it go. And and these three guys started uh, taking these guys steelheading. And the challenge of steelheading and then picking up the fly tying and, and working so hard to catch a fish up in the, up in the Northwest, you know, we, we actually got, a couple letters from some of these veterans thanking us for helping this program because it's changed their life that their that challenge and, and that that high level of being challenged that they're used to in the military world that's totally absent from day-to-day -day life they can find it in fly fishing and trying to get steelhead and you know using two-handers single-handers whatever it is it's it's they can get their their adrenaline out of that or their, their need to feed that, you know, highly challenging task 
through fly fishing. So I thought that's a it's a really cool program. One of the one of the things that I like about fishing for veteran programs as opposed to hunting, and I've I've done a lot of both. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about fishing is that's something that people can go home and continue to do. Whereas yes. hunting, it's like, yeah, you just had this really awesome experience. You got to go elk hunting or deer hunting or bear hunting or whatever. You probably can't go back home and continue doing that. But with fishing or or waterfowl hunting, for example, yeah, there's a good chance they can go home and, and keep that up. And it's like, it's a new hobby. It's a new profession, not necessarily profession, but it's a new venture that they can get after. And yeah. And fishing, they can that. do it all year. Totally. Right? Whether it's for bluegills or bass or trout or whatever they have in the backyard. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about like all the, all the memories and, and bad stuff that comes along with combat. It's sort of like walking down a sidewalk and then on either side of you, there's a bunch of fences with dogs barking at you. And that's kind of what those, what those memories and feelings are like on a normal basis. Yeah. Um, but when you're fishing, as you know, you have to completely focus in on what you're doing. Like if you're nymphing, that's all you're doing. You're busy constantly. Your mind and your body are completely focused on what you're doing all the time. There's no chance for anything else to happen. So you can't hear those dogs and getting that relief for a minute or two or for an hour or two. It's terrific. And you know, that can give people that that foothold to start moving forward again. I love it. So, so I, I, I always say that up until I moved to Florida, the majority of major life decisions I made on a trout stream. Totally. Because there's a magic that happens on a trout stream that you cannot replicate on a flats boat or on an elk hunt. It's yeah. the same thing. Like flats fishing is a lot more like hunting, right? Yeah. Unless you live here and have your flats boat and can go do it every day and you go by yourself. It's not, it doesn't take you to that place where you are when you trout fish, when you cast that fly for the 50th time and it's going to exactly the spot where that trout's going to eat it and it doesn't eat it again, you start daydreaming and your thoughts go off and the trout actually takes when you're off somewhere far away. So <laughs> it's, it's my meditation. I remember my wife said that I should meditate and I said, you know what? I think I do. Cause when I'm stressed out or something, you know, what takes my, mind off of things is thinking about the woods and the streams and that's what does it for me. So maybe that's my meditation. I think it is. I think it absolutely is. Yeah. What are some good fishing trips you've been on? Man. So this Iceland trip that, that I'm talking about, I've done it now. I think I'm doing it for the third or fourth time now. Uh, it's lake fishing. So it's definitely not my favorite type of fishing, but to be able to catch 30, you know, 32, 35, I think the biggest one I caught was 33 and a half and it had a 29 and a half inch girth. Uh, but these are pristine trout with not a scar, no lampreys, no seals, nothing that bites them. They're just perfect fish that, you know, weigh up to 20 pounds. You're like, what? Where does this come from? <laughs> so that's one of my one of my great trips. And then another one I did 1994 or 93. I was working in Venezuela and I remember a buddy calling me and tell me that they had a spot open to take a dugout with, with a motor on it uh, up through the um, Orinoco River across this uh, connector between the Orinoco and the Rio Negro. The Rio Negro then flows into the Amazon River. And it was a 12-day trip where we went by some you know, native uh, villages and just these pristine spots that are just untouched with, you know, carvings and rocks and, and just amazing 12 days. That's my, my favorite trip of all time, I have to say. What were you fishing for? Peacock bass, catfish. I mean, everything. We were just fishing. I had a great time. And, and just incredible. And this, this connecting arm is the damnest thing I've ever seen in my life. Depending on the water levels in the Amazon, and in the Orinoco, which are on opposite sides, uh, or one, one points north and the other one points east, they both go into the Atlantic or into the Gulf, the, the Orinoco. This connecting arm, depending on water levels, will flow uh, from north to south, and then the water level changes, and it flows from south to north. Really? So all the rocks are worn on both sides. Wow. Which is amazing. Because it's like you have, you know, the water level was pretty low. So you could see where the gravel 
uh, uh, would form an eddy when the water's up, but it's on both sides of the rock. That's amazing. It's crazy, but it was beautiful, just massive. And, and the magnitude of those rivers is what's, what's most mind boggling and the wildlife. It's just crazy. That was my favorite thing ever. But at heart, if I could pick anything to do, it's brown trout. Where? That's my, that's my ticket. Any little creek that isn't fished very much. Yeah. And especially if there's some little rainbows that bother me from catching the brown <laughs> trout. Even better. <laughs> the, the ones that get in the way. Uh, what's your most memorable brown trout? Uh, I'd have to say that one that I caught up on that lake in Iceland. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, they're just so, I mean, they're perfect. They're, they're, there's not a, not a scratch on them. They're amazing fish. And are they getting so big because of the volcanic activity or like how, how are those fish doing it? So, so, so that's part of the coolness of it. Cause, cause I mean, I guess you could imagine standing on pyramid Lake and, and casting these cutthroats on ladders. They don't use ladders here, but I think it could get pretty boring. What keeps you going is that big, big fish that you might just catch. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, but what adds in this place is you'll have, uh, uh, like a, a volcanic, what's a spring that comes out next to it uh, and runs out into the water. And so you wade through this tiny little channel that comes from a hole in the ground over there. Uh, you wade through it and it's 110 degrees in the water. And once you get past it, you go back to, you know, 34 degree water. Okay. And so these trout feed on Arctic char out in the middle of nowhere in near freezing water or below freezing water, depending on how deep they go. And they come back in. It's almost like they come in to digest. So they go, they'll sit there and just relax in, in, in this buffer zone between the hot water and the cold water, which is probably in the, you know, fifties or something like that. Sure. And they'll hang there. Sometimes you can see a hundred trout just hanging just lagging there and then they'll actively feed. So once you'll catch one on a dry fly and then the next one you'll catch on a streamer and, and then the next 200, you don't catch. It's just, <laughs> it's crazy stuff. It's that, that, that's what keeps you coming back. It's, it's the environment and the company. Also, you know, I've done this trip with some cool friends and it's become an annual thing. So is that the type of deal where you lease a beat for the day? Yeah, so so uh, we've got a friend that lives in Iceland that sets this all up for us, and we go for three days. Some stay longer, and uh, he's got two beats, and they're highly productive beats. I think the first year I caught thirty some, and last year I caught like eleven, which makes it hard on a lake. When you're catching thirty some on a lake, you're busy sure. in three days. But but when you're catching eleven in three days, like the last day. My buddy Andy, he cast at one, and uh, that fish, uh, no, actually, we showed up in the morning. My first cast, I caught a fish, which meant I immediately figured out the exact pattern they were going to take, and we were going to catch a shit ton of fish that morning, and I didn't catch another one all day. And then when I was packed up to go, I yelled out, Andy, we got to go. He hadn't caught a single one all day. Caught one on the last cast. So it, it kept out a long day, but it was good. I feel like I need to fish every three hours to keep my head in the game. If, if it's less frequent than that, then I end up, you know, taking a nap on the beach or something like that. Or the cold beer. Yeah. There's always cold beer. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a good standby. <laughs> always. Uh, these, these jungle fisheries are, are interesting to me. And I think that there's more and more people looking at, you know, golden Dorado and, um, and peacock bass and, and things like that. And looking at going to Bolivia and Colombia or trying to catch tiger fish in Tanzania. Do you see that as, as sort of the, the emerging travel fishery? I think it's been hot for a long, long time. I think the fact that uh, it's not very accessible to most people. I mean, if you want to go to some good lodges uh, that are fly fishing oriented, because there's plenty of, you know, $2,000 packages you can get to go in the Amazon, but you're not going to be guided by guys that even liked the fly fishing part of it. They just want to have guys throw poppers and rapalas and stuff out there. When you have a lodge that 
caters to the fly fishermen, uh, the experience is a lot better, but those typically cost, you know, north of four grand. Right. So there's that limit there, the travel. So if you look at, uh, you know, yeah, if I had to pick, uh, you know, Tanzania for tiger fish or, you know, Brazil or Colombia for, for peacock bass, guess where I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to take the two hour flight. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and that's sort of, that's, that's what's kept me from, uh, you know, wanting to go to the Seychelles. Yeah. I'd love to, you know, chuck a fly at a big GT, uh, you know, be out in this pristine wilderness really. Right. Uh, but man, to spend two full days traveling, you know, to have to spend 14 days on the road and, and fish for seven, it's rough, man. It's rough. I know right when uh, the, the COVID lockdowns happened last year, there were some dudes that got stuck out in the Seychelles and, and just had to keep fishing for jeets. <laughs> that's okay. I think that's good. But, but you know, like my yeah. argument is I, I have the bonefish here. I don't have the milkfish. That's one that sort of intrigues me. But, but uh, you know, here we have pretty much all the flat species and then we have jacks. And yeah, okay, so I'm not going to catch an 80-pound jack but I can catch 30 pounders. And after I've caught one, I'm done. What kind of Jack is it? Just Jack Ravals. Jack Ravals. They yeah. run. So right now they're running the beaches from Stewart South. Okay. And, uh, it's pretty epic. You know, you, you, you go out there and you tease them with a hopeless popper and they come crashing down these poppers and you see them come in waves. Seas are typically rough this time. You see them come in waves and they're just, you know, it can be a dozen, it can be a hundred of them all swimming together, surfing this wave and you're throwing a, you know, hookless teaser out there and reeling it in. They start chasing and then you drop the fly in there. But dude, that 30 pound Jack will kick your butt. So I don't even know what an 80 pounder would do to you. Whenever I have clients who come to me right after they've been on a tarpon trip in Florida, they're always like flinchy. And if they make a mistake, they, they kind of look at me like I'm about to yell at them and eventually they relax and realize we're just fishing for trout. We're here to have fun. Yeah. Um, but what I consistently hear from guys who go on tarpon trips in Florida is that their guides are really aggressive and yell at them. Is that something you've experienced and why is that happening? I'll give you the, my, my, my theory on that. This is not scientifically proven, but if I say it, it should be. So (laughs) I think that the guides are under so much pressure. Again, you have individuals, right? So, Hey, if you're, if you're going out fishing with an asshole, it doesn't matter if you're on a trout stream or on a, on a flat spot, you're going to have a bad time. But uh, the guides are under so much pressure on these fish that are not feeding. You have to elicit uh, the knee-jerk reaction of that fish to take a fly. And so these fish are coming down, especially oceanside fish. They're coming down in strings of, you know, five to 100 fish. And it's extremely frustrating. It's a beautiful sight to see. Uh, but the, this guy that comes down for three, four, five days, he might make a few shots. And he, and he messes it up because he hasn't been casting his 11 weight enough. And uh, isn't quite understanding what the guy's trying to tell him. It's, oh, 11 o'clock. And he points, to, he points to 2 o'clock. You know, and it's like, no, the other 11 is like, oh, it goes over there. And, and so doesn't know exactly where to cast. He messes it up. He lines the fish. The guy's under pressure to get this guy's tarpon. And so when he finally does hook him, he's also prolonging the fight of that tarpon because he wants that photo for the for his client because he wants it bad for him. Yeah. And a lot of clients feel that as pressure from the guide. It's actually the guy just trying to do his best. Uh, you know, I've, I've got... Two kinds of guides, guides that tell me I'm an idiot and, and why did I mess it up again? And the other guy that says, good try, Kristen. Uh, let's try that again. You know, it's like, which one do I prefer? Personally, I prefer the guy that yells at me and tells me I'm an idiot. But other people, <laughs> other people can't handle the pressure and they need the guy that says, good try. Do it again, idiot. Right. Yeah. But but so I think I, I, I defend the, the, the guide here in trying to do the best job for the angler. But I also advise the guy that wants to get good at tarpon fishing, the fastest way to learn that or to learn to fight a tarpon is to go out at nighttime with a nighttime guide 
you'll jump, you know, sometimes zero, but most of the time you'll jump three, four, maybe five, maybe a dozen fish, and you're no longer afraid to lose them. You know how to fight the fish. You learn how to fight the fish on your first night out. If you do two nights, you'll be damn good at it by the second night. You know how much pressure you can put on 20-pound test. Uh, you know, it, all this stuff you don't know. When you're a trout guy, you don't know how much pressure. 20 pounds when you've got an 80-pounder jumping seems like nothing. It's a lot of line. And, and so that's what I always say. And, and, and then they get their fix. And then they can go down to the Keys. And if they catch one on the ocean side, it feels even better. Yeah. Yeah, but, for but sure. The, for, from the casting component, the only thing you can learn is to keep booking that guide. Yeah. Practicing with an 11 weight is not the most fun you can have with your pants on. No, hey, you could you could practice with a 13 weight. <laughs> It'll make the 11 seem pretty nice. That's a good point. How far do people need to be able to cast? You know, if, if somebody's coming from Montana and they've been whooping on 18 inch brown trout, how far do they need to be able to cast their 11 weight? And, you know, what's the relationship between distance and accuracy? Which one would you put more? more important song accuracy is king uh but but the 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 big challenge for for the trout guy on fish that are on the flats is to lead the fish because a moving target is not something you see on a trout stream you're when you see a trout you pick a spot in the river whether it's a rock or a ripple or whatever and that's what you're casting at it's a stationary target you're casting at and then it's drifting here it's the opposite the target's moving you have to lead it. You have to let the fly sink. And then the, you have to listen to the guide. And he tells you tap, 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 and you tap, tap, tap. And then he tells you, dude, that's not a tap, tap, tap. That's a strip, strip, strip. If I say tap, 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 you got to do this. So it's, it's so different. Right. And that's why accuracy comes into play in understanding how to lead a moving fish. And I think that's something that they should practice is, is you know, maybe pick something floating down a creek. And, and say, okay, I want to be, you know, four feet ahead of it and get that, you know, throw a stick out there and cast four feet ahead of the stick as it's moving down the stream. That's a better form of practice. But last week, yeah, it was last week, I was out fishing with a guide. And then I questioned a few other guys that came by the shop here. And I said, hey, what's your average cast? And, or what's your operating range when you're fishing on the flats? How far do you cast? And that includes your Hail Mary. Right. You're, oh, man, he's far away. Because at 80, 80 feet out, uh, to, to put the fly where it's supposed to be, to get it to move, to be able to even set the hook with all that line out, it's, it's, it's a Hail Mary. Extremely hard. Yes. But so I asked all these guides and, and shop guys, what's your average casting distance? And they all said that it's somewhere between 30 and 50 feet. Yeah whether it's tarpon, bonefish, permit, whatever it is, that's the window. And that's very doable if you practice a little bit. Very doable. Very doable. And punching 50, 50 feet into the wind is not nothing. It's, it's tough. And yeah. to get the fly to roll out there. And, and the, the, I think where, where uh, the, the trout guys, and I'm not talk, talking about the, the bobber clan. I'm talking <laughs> about the dry fly purists that go to heaven. <laughs> They know how to present the fly <laughs> delicately. Right? You're saying I'm not going to heaven, Kristen? You're not going to go to heaven if you're using a bobber. Isaac Walton said <laughs> that in his book. So. Man, I am team split shot and bobber. <laughs> oh, you're out, man. You're out. <laughs> well, I'll be in good company. Yeah, Ben Bishop will wait for you down there because he's definitely. <laughs> shot I know he's going to be the guy with the cheesy peanut butter spread. <laughs> But so back to the whole uh, advantage that I think trout guys have is if it's slick out and you need to present a delicate cast, the trout guy that throws a dry fly knows how to make it furl out in the air and have the line come down. And that's something that the day-to-day saltwater guy or the not-so-experienced saltwater guy doesn't have. And the bobber guy definitely doesn't. He's just bombing it. Do you get involved in blue water fishing much? Love it. What species? I love it. Yeah. So we we go. So most of our real testing is done offshore. Yeah. Uh, it's really uh, we do some testing on tarpon mostly at night, and then we give it to guides, and they put it in client sand. Uh, but like the the initial test before we 
check off a reel and say, okay, it's ready to go out to the guides and, and or ready to go to market. We'll go up to Jupiter and go offshore and uh, stick, you know, Bonitas. We'll stick Bonitas. We'll stick uh, Dolphin, whatever shows up offshore. So that you live chum or, or dead chum, uh, you know, a mile and a half offshore in Jupiter. And there's like the, the Gulf Stream makes a little elbow there. And you'll have 40 fish days. You know, if you go three guys, there'll be three bent over rods the majority of the day. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And we get amberjack and we've had, you know, blue marlin come up. We've had sailfish come in and take a fly. And wahoo. Man, I mean, it, it's it's unlimited, all the stuff you can get there. So are you running steel in case wahoo are coming through? Nah. Yeah. It's rare. It's really rare. I was trying to catch sailfish um, in North Carolina and was just getting cut in half by wahoo all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Man. I've, I've only caught i've only stuck two wahoo in my lifetime uh, uh one was in venezuela and the the fish took my fly with with uh, uh steel leader headed straight away from the boat maybe pulled 100 150 yards of backing and then did a 180 and came right back at the fly line and the fly line was cut in half on its way back to me just ran its mouth through the fly line end of story they're such assholes that's that seems like classic wahoo they're amazing fish, man. But but so back to back to the old blue water deal. <laughs> yeah. The blue water deal, the, the, the sail fishing stuff, people criticize it as not fly fishing and all that. I don't care. <laughs> what it is is you're teasing this huge fish up and you're using disadvantaged gear to lob a cast to this fish that's desperately looking for this thing that just came out of the water. Yeah. Put it next to his face and stick a hook in him. And sailfish in the Pacific, they typically don't fight as hard. They jump a lot, so they tire themselves out. But it's the whole take, the tease, which is amazing. I've had blue marlin come up in the spread. I've never caught a blue marlin because they, they just break everything. But so had a blue marlin come up behind the boat. And unless you've seen this, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It shows up like a brown snake behind the boat. And they're messing with the teaser. They're throwing out a ballyhoo. Doesn't look at it. And they're messing with them and messing with them. And suddenly, it's like you had a whole panel board of switches, and you start turning switches on, and you see these neon colors appear on the fish. The blues show up, stripes. All these lights go on. You're like, holy crap, what's going on? And everybody starts yelling because that just means the shit's about to hit the fan. And he comes crashing across and thrashes everything you've put in front of them and just busts off and breaks off the fly line. You're like, what just happened? <laughs> yeah. They, uh, when they get lit up like that, it's pretty incredible. It's amazing. It's just, it's, it's one of those, you know, mysteries of nature that just keeps amazing me. It's, it's like, I, I, I can see that circuit board as I'm switching it on. It's crazy. Can you imagine if elk did that? That would be pretty cool. Wouldn't that be cool if when, when a bull started to uh, get a little bit excited, he turned neon? Turn some, yeah, turn some lights on. Unicorn style, man. Yeah. That'd be badass. <laughs> 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 oh, so what's the future hold for, for you and for Nautilus? Like, wh what's man, the direction keep, you go now? We keep cranking them out. We have been backordered for years uh we're we uh, during the pandemic we were able to buy a few machines uh that are speeding up our production and you know funny thing like when we hired a, a i think it was our last sales rep when i hired him i told him hey this is before you agree to it we have to understand one thing this is not your typical sales rep job i don't want you to go out there and open up accounts there's 15 accounts in your territory and I gave him the history of how it worked better for us than having 75 in that territory because people are drawn to the shop and the shops give you more loyalty. They give you more space. And so we told him he could have a max of 20 stores. I think right now in the Southern Rockies, we've got 18, maybe not 19 now. And it's incredible how that territory has grown with just a few select dealers. And, and so our, our MO is to feed these guys enough reels so they stop complaining that they're not getting enough. Yeah. But it's amazing how, you know, you have to go against your normal train of thought, which is, man, let me open as many doors as I can. It's like, hey, man, you know what? When we started closing doors, we started doing a lot better, which is crazy. But 
made sense workforce. So yeah. that's where we're at. Just keeping production up and hopefully one day we'll have finished goods on the shelf right now. Anything you order, if you order a reel right now, it's going to be four weeks for an ASAP. That's better than, better than most, better than most. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in this, in this time it is, Yeah. but you know, certain models we haven't run in a while and we're just trying, trying to find time to run them. And, and so like the NV89, one of our top sellers, that's still out, you know, four to six weeks before we get to run it. So, and we haven't had them for a couple months. What's the, uh, what's the fishing trip that you haven't done that you want to do? Oh, I really couldn't tell you, man. Oh yeah. I'll tell you which one I'd like to go fish for Atlantic salmon in Russia. Yeah. Yes. I did my share of Atlantic salmon fishing in Norway and it's tragic how bad it is right now. Uh, it's still, it's, it's not worth doing for me right now, but if I was up there at the time and was in the neighborhood, I would definitely go do it knowing that I'm just going to wet a line. But the Atlantic salmon is a special, special fish. And, and I think Russia is the ones that have the healthiest fish. And we can thank the fish farmers for that. Did yeah. you know that we have a Atlantic salmon fish farm in Homestead, Florida? Really? All land-based. So they're taking water out of the aquifer that's at 60 degrees or something. Right. Pulling it up, filtering it before they let it back out. So it never goes in the ocean. Mm. I don't know. I haven't looked at any results of the filtering. And so I don't know what goes back down to the aquifer. Right. But uh, I'm assuming it's going to be a lot better than what's going out into the sea with all these nets in the ocean. But it's pretty cool that you can have an Atlantic salmon farm in Homestead, Florida. Yeah. So so tell, tell me more about what's going on with Atlantic salmon farming in the ocean and how that's affecting the wild salmon. No, oh, it's pathetic. I mean, you, the, 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 all the diseases spread out. Uh, the the life under these farms gets all totally altered with all the crap that's coming down, the excess food. Uh, I mean, I remember last time I salmon fished was probably in the early 90s sometime in Norway. And I remember catching the salmon and it had a hole in its head. And I was like, huh, it was just a farm fish it had a blunt nose and a big hole between its two eyes. I was like, man, it's crazy that these fish go in there and compete for spawning. Yeah. And mix in with this stock. And, and Norway is pretty good about uh, stocking rivers. Pretty much every big salmon river has uh, a stocking program for the fish from that drainage, which is very cool. So you're keeping the, the real fish that belong in that drainage, where one fjord north, it's a totally different salmon. Right. Depending on how the river runs. But you know, there's been this uh, gyrodactylus bacteria where they've had to poison entire river systems right. to kill off all the salmon, to try to kill this disease off. Good or bad, it's, it's, the result's been terrible. Uh, I don't know if it would have been worse had they not done it. I have no, no idea. I lived in uh, Trondheim, Norway for a year when I was in high school. Cool. And I, yeah. did a, I did a bunch of salmon fishing and right right there in downtown Trondheim. Um, and I can't remember the name of the river that comes in, but, um, it split and went around a little Island, um, that was in the downtown. And one of my schools was on that Island and I could see the salmon coming up from where I was taking math cool. in, in Norwegian when I didn't understand math or Norwegian at the time. And I'd see these fish come up and be like, you know what, you guys, <laughs> I'm out. So I'd go and go and fish and, you know, I'm sure a lot of the places that I was fishing, I was not supposed to be. I didn't understand the regulations. Um, so I apologize to the country of Norway for any crimes that I may have committed a long time ago. <laughs> I had a blast um, and got to catch a few Atlantics, got to fish in the ocean a little bit and catch some out there, um, you know, with a fly rod from the beach, not knowing a thing in the world what I was doing. But yeah, Norway is a, a really beautiful country. And I admire the effort that they, that they put into natural resource management and they don't always get it right, but they absolutely uh, try. Yeah. There's an effort in there. Yeah. No, it's a pretty country. I go back every year or every other year we go back and we go on the reindeer hunt with a group. That's another one of these group trips. Yeah. And it's fun. It's, it's probably one of the toughest hunts I do. Really? 
Yeah, just because it's a lot of walking and a lot of packing. I mean, you're no stranger to packing out, but you know, it's it's bogs and long walks. Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not firm footing. You know, you're on all that exactly. moss and yeah. Well, those reindeer are pretty big too, in in the spectrum of reindeer. Yeah, they're. I mean, it's it's good. We've got a good crew out there. That you know, good friends that that help us out when we go, and and the cool thing with Norway and and cool because it's very well managed. Uh, I don't know that it would work here. Your tags are transferable. Yeah. So, the way you draw a tag for a reindeer. Uh, bull for or, or reindeer, for example, is you submit and you say, I want to go reindeer hunting this year. They look at your past reindeer harvests as a group. So you do a group application, right? Mm-hmm. They look at your history. And so they see, okay, so this guy had, he, he won uh, for you was assigned five tags. He bought another six tags and he filled all. So if we give this guy six tags, we know he's going to fill the six tags because they right. need to manage the population. Yeah. If somebody gets a tag every year and sells it, but somebody else reports it, he goes down on the list. So you can transfer tags between people. I like that. But but also it, it goes to, hey, this is a, a wildlife management tool. Yeah. And strict fines, strict fines. Like the reindeer, you pack it out. You have to pack it out whole. You can't bone it. Really? You can, you can cut it into pieces and pack it out, but then you have to bring it to a weigh station, weigh it, and have certified that you killed that 55-kilo animal, no bigger, or you get fined. Hmm. And, and, you know, or a calf, you got a calf tag. That's also done. So they it, it goes beyond the wildlife management here where they tell you it's not just does and bucks, it's calves, and then also, you know, mature bucks. Right. You got to keep those in the herd to keep them breeding. So they, th- there's the fewest number of tags you can get is the mature box. And I think that a lot of wildlife managers here in the states would say, "Well, that's too much work. That's an impossible task." But you know, it's it's really not. Norway is a similar size and population as my home state of Oregon. Um, so if they can pull that off, surely we can too. Man, and I tell you another thing. It's also it's also the people that surround it, right? So we'll be reindeer hunting. And you see a 60-some-year-old lady, that was the last one we saw, walking her dogs. You've been walking for three hours. And here's a lady on a morning walk, three hours from the road. Yeah. Coming back. You're like, wow. And so, you know, she goes, oh, you guys reindeer hunting? It's like, yeah. Well, I just saw a herd crest over the back over there. So, and I think they're moving over that way. This is a total stranger that sees you out there and embraces yep she might be a hunter she might not be a hunter she's not trying to keep it to herself she's sharing that information yeah yeah it's, it's and that's pretty pretty cool to see that it is cool norwegian women are tough people yes yeah they're very i mean very tough. from an athletic standpoint for sure i mean all the guys i i look at my friends and i'm sort of i'm focusing more on the ones that have uh, a non-six-pack like i do but I see how physically, <laughs> how physically active they are compared to what I do. Yeah. And it's amazing, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, very cool place. Um, but you were born in Sweden? Norway. You were born in Norway. Yeah. Where at? Oslo. Just outside of Oslo, a little okay. place called Badum. It's just a suburb of, of, of the greater Oslo. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. So where are you hunting reindeer? Is it Rundana or someplace else? Uh, it's up, it's about, uh, three. Yeah. It's, it's about, uh, I think it's like a three hour drive North of Oslo. Okay. And they, but you can go much further. It's just the guys that we know there, that's where they hunt and it, it's pretty accessible. But as you know, in Norway, it's accessible until you start walking and then it stops being accessible. Right. Yeah. I know the, the longest pack out we had was from 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. And that was one trip and we did it again. Yeah, that's that's sweaty times. Yeah, and, you're, and, you, and you've got 55 kilos on your back. So that's 130, 140 pounds. How many, um, what's, what's the bug situation like at the time of year that you're hunting? Are the bugs bad? Um, not really, because it's windy. Okay. Yeah, and you're always moving too. 
So I think the exhaustion is a lot worse than the bugs. Do you use silencers? Uh, so you, we can't take them there. I've often thought of just buying one and leaving it there. Yeah. But the reality is I'll be firing three, four shots while I'm there. It doesn't really matter. Right. But most everybody uses them there and they just buy them over the counter. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, you can go in without a gun license and buy it. Like you could fly into Norway and go to the gun shop and buy a silencer and come back here and get arrested and get 15 years in jail. <laughs> Uh, in Norway has some strict gun regulations and silencers you can buy over the counter. Uh, yes. But so, so, the, the, I mean, the whole thought is if you buy a silencer, it's, uh, maybe you can clog it up and use it to, as an oil catcher, but, uh, most people would use it on a gun. And if you have a gun, uh, you've already been vetted. Right. And it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, so you can have like an AR. Yeah. Uh, but you can have handguns. They don't allow you to hunt with handguns. Uh, but if you like to shoot handguns, you can apply for a handgun permit. They require that you be a member of a, of a handgun club mm -hmm. and that you fire a minimum, I think it's 50 rounds a year, and that one of the supervising club members certifies that you're apt to use the handgun. So if you say, I want to have a handgun, I want to sports shoot, Okay, you can. You got to. What club are you going to be a member of? Uh, and you know, you got to. You go there and you got to show them that you know how to handle a gun and how to shoot it. Much like a concealed carry permit here, you got to do a little bit of a, a, you know, class, but just a little stricter there. Uh, you have to have a, a, a gun safe that the government has uh, okayed. So. Not that you have to take your gun safe to the government and they check off on it, but there's a list of uh, companies that make safes that, that, that have the government approval. And the safe has to be closed at all time with a key nowhere near the safe uh, unless you're taking the guns out to clean or maintain or whatever, do whatever with them at home, or if you're going coming from hunting. Yeah. Stricter, yes. Does it work? It works and sometimes not favorably. Right. Well, I'm not a huge fan of, of government regulation uh, when it comes to guns, but you know, the, the way some of those rules are written, you know, it doesn't sound too bad the way you describe it. Yeah. You know, my, my whole point here is uh, uh, if the government really wanted to know about you back in the, in the, in the, in the forties, fifties and sixties, these German police would have wiretaps on everything and they would follow a guy and they'd have this old map of Berlin and, and every conversation he'd had that was overheard by a long distance microphone or whatever it was, it was written down on notepads and they had, you know, hundreds and thousands of interactions of this one individual they're spying on. Right. Right. Right now you subpoena AT&T yep. and they've, they know how many rounds you fired through your gun. Cause you'd sent Ben Bishop and the text message said, dude, I just shot 300 rounds at the range. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? They've got it all. So, so honestly, what are we really hiding? I don't know. Man. No, I'm not hiding anything. It's so, so my, my thing here is, and, and until I got my concealed permit, I had a waiting period Yeah. in Florida. And I think it's seven days or 10 days now. I don't know. And I just said, well, you know what? That's the price I pay for trying to keep something sane. Right. Yeah. Before, if you had another gun, you could just take it home because if you were buying it to go, uh, you know, commit a crime, you didn't need the new gun to commit a crime. You could have done it with the one you had. So obviously you're not going to commit a crime. Sure. But if I have to pay the price for the bad guy, uh, I usually do it or I, I'm willing to do it. I'm, I'm not opposed to it. But the bad guys are always going to find the gun. Or something else. Yeah, and they're, they're always good. I, I looked at some statistic about gun deaths and then stabbing deaths. And it's like, man, we've got to get on the whole knife situation here fast. Yeah, we need some, some knife control laws out there. Big time, big time. Butter knives. Baseball bats. Butter knives. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. make you a custom butter knife to skin your elk. <laughs> well, and you got you to keep the butter knife in a safe, you know, <laughs> at all times, unless you're actively spreading butter or on your way <laughs> actively spread butter. <laughs> anyway, dude, there's no perfect world and I don't blame anybody. I try to be a good citizen and a good steward to the environment. And 
ultimately, I think I'm doing a decent job at it. And I just want to keep doing a better job at it. Well, you make a damn fine fly reel. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank you for your time today, Kristen. How, how can people find out more, more about Nautilus? Check out our website, uh, nautilusreels.com or Facebook and Instagram, which is at Nautilus Fly Reels. Cool. Cool. And we'll, uh, we'll link all that in, in the description, in the podcast description down here. And highly encourage you guys to go find a, a dealer and put one of these things in your, in your hands and, and uh, ask your dealer about this dragon. See if he knows as much about it as what Kristen just told you. That's the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, sir. Well, thank you very much. Hey, thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for everything. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.